Welcome to another episode of Region Free Gamers. I am Anthony Ariaga, aka Polybits, and today we're gonna get all up in your VMUs, we're gonna get all up and crazy in your taxi, and we're gonna put your jet sets in the upright position, because today we're going back to 1999, and we're talking about the Sega bad boy itself, the Sega Dream- And you're, you're not on this episode today, dude. What do, you, what do you mean I'm not on this episode? It's a full house, man. You're not needed today. Are you serious? Yo, you mother- Hello, welcome back to Region Free Gamers Podcast, the podcast that is fluent in gaming. I'm your host for today, Jeff, and we're here to uh, have a celebratory episode. Yes, the Sega Dreamcast turns 20 years old this year in North America and the Powell Territories. So I'm here joined by a few good men who have very fond memories of this iconic console. But before we get into that, we have a few housekeeping rules that uh, we want to address. First of all, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Then, if you could, if you could go ahead and leave a review for us on iTunes. Every single review does a fantastic job for us in getting us up those charts. And finally, if you haven't done so already, we've actually got a webpage for you to visit, regionfreegamers.com, where we have exclusive articles and we have companion pieces to these very episodes. So, to the panel. And I'm going to have to uh, stretch my neck a bit here because I'm all the way over in Europe. But to the close, <laughs> and I'm using my geographical abilities here. So to the closest west of me, we got Arnie out of Rhode Island. Hey, Arnie. Hey. Then slightly west from there, straight out of New York via Cuba, we have Ozzy. The orange swirl is the only swirl. <laughs> <laughs> and we've already begun. <laughs> and then finally... Way out, way out in the sticks in the Yukon, we have Paul. Hey, Paul. Hey, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Jeff, I'm so impressed with your with your geographical abilities. Because oh. Paul just gave up on that because he realized maybe this doesn't <laughs> work best in using cardinal directions is not what we should be doing right on a podcast. <laughs> well, I was I was trying to address your concerns with accuracy, Ozzy. <laughs> yeah. It's very important, very important. <laughs> if you're going to do some geography, you better be accurate. Or else you're going to have the Geography <laughs> Mafia coming after you. <laughs> yes, yes, Geography Mafia and their, <laughs> and their pocket protectors. and They just beat you with maps. But hey, Jeff, you did a fantastic <laughs> job introducing us. And, and we're so glad to have Jeff. This is your first hosting episode. So we're so thrilled to have that. So I don't want to let that go unmentioned. So oh, thank nice. you so yeah. much for, for taking the baton for this episode. And <laughs> no worries. we're so happy to be talking Dreamcast. Yeah, and, and this is something that, that we've been talking about, I guess, for the last well, three or four weeks. And I think every time I, I see Paul's trying to stay out of those conversations, but we could go so deep in this, this could easily be 10 <laughs> hours long. So uh, oh, we're going to try to keep it to five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, what uh, in order to get through two hours, because it's incredibly short amount of time to go through 
a console when you, even though the Dreamcast only survived, well, lived for three years, there's actually a Absolutely. hell of a lot going on with it. So there's a lot to cover. So uh, we got to we got to keep it as structured as possible. I've listened to a lot of your previous podcasts, so I know it's easy for uh, Paul to derail us. So I'm keeping my eyes on you, Paul. Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> no? I'm looking at Arnie, actually. <laughs> Paul's the only one that keeps us honest, actually. <laughs> With my rants on Arnie's diatribes, I mean, I don't know if we're ever actually not derailed. Yeah, cheers. So, um, what I'm going to kick off with just a little bit of history, uh, some facts, some figures. Don't want to keep it too dry for too long because I really want to get into the conversations. Uh, But so, yeah, the Dreamcast launched in America, North America on the 9999, super famous date. They utilized that to perfection for $199. Now, I know when you look at inflation, when you take that into account, to me, $199 is still an incredibly amazing opening price for a brand new console. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the Sega Saturn had come out five years earlier for three ninety nine. Yeah, and that was you know five years earlier, or actually four My years God. earlier. So they had messed up on all fronts. And so to just come out of the gate with one ninety nine, they were either brilliant or they were sowing the seeds of their disaster. Yeah, um, I think they were sowing the seeds. Like I'm pretty sure Bernie Stolar went over the heads of the <laughs> Japanese with that price. No, I know what you're. I know why you're laughing, Arnie. And yes, I'm going to shit on Bernie Stolar today, but you know the time will come. I'm just talking about the price right now. Yeah, I think yeah. the original price that the Japanese, that Sega of Japan, wanted was two forty nine, and then Bernie Stolar did his press conference, and he was all like one ninety nine, and then it was, and then the cat was out of the bag, and that was it. But it must have been cleared by the Japanese, though. I mean, I can't imagine. I think they didn't have a choice. Yeah. Like once, once a dude gets up on stage and tells the media <laughs> that it's going to be a certain price. Like, they can't come back three weeks later and say, actually... Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a very outsized figure. He was a larger-than-life figure in that time period of Sega, and it's no wonder that he would only get fired, like, a year later The release after the release. And Peter Moore was, like, giving this baby, like, hey, bring bring us home. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, personally, I would have continued the theme, so I would have released it on nine nine ninety nine at a price of $999 with nine games. Wow. Yeah, I and think that's that's, why that's you the angle I would have Sega gone of America. At. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think I think you're I think you're right in the sense that 199 obviously seems very cost effective, um, like in, in for a consumer standpoint. But you're figuring like they're probably losing monies on consoles even at 249. So to put them out at 199, they had to be selling at a loss. They had to be selling at a loss. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At a loss. oh absolutely, they were selling at a huge loss. Yeah. Like that first year, I think they had close to 400 million in losses. The first year, even though the system sold like hotcakes, yeah. like yep. it was it was a big deal at the beginning. I think they got through about 220k in, in just 24 hours. So Oof. yeah, it was it was incredible. Before the end of November, they even shipped over a million units. But as you guys are saying, one ninety nine, you're sowing the seeds there. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna oh, touch yeah. upon that towards the end about like why the console might have failed. There's there's a if you go through the internet, there's like a million articles all blaming something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? And on top of that, I mean, you already had. We're talking about nine ninety nine ninety nine, but it had already released in Japan for about a year, close to a year. And the Japanese launch, as you're probably gonna go into it, Jeff, was not successful at all. No, nope. um, and that could probably be attributed to a, a host of reasons. But 
a terrible launch lineup being chief among them. Oh my god, dude. A penguin triathlon game? Are you kidding? Pen pen trisalon. <laughs> pen pen trisalon. But like you're <laughs> you have three games at launch. None of them are Sonic, and one of them is Penguins. And like, <laughs> do, did we really expect anything different? But, but dude, Other Godzilla Generations. Yeah. Godzilla Generations. Have you ever seen that game in action? Nope. I'll be honest nope. with you, I haven't. D- 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 dude, I'm talking, this is a horrible, horrible, horrible game. I mean, this should have never... <laughs> okay, guys, okay, guys, d- let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's not get ahead. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have we to pop the brakes on you right there. Yeah. Whoa. whoa, whoa. Okay. So. <laughs> right. So what? What I wanted to ask you guys first is like, what was your relationship with Sega prior to the Dreamcast launch, Paul? Okay. So can I start the shitting on Bernie Stolar now? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Please go ahead. Okay. Oh, My boy. relationship with Sega was like I was like a masochist, honestly, because <laughs> I had. I had a Master System, I had a Genesis at one point, Sega I had CD? a Saturn. No, no, even... Come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the Sega CD was actually alright, the 32X. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was basically like a masochist with this company, because I, I loved their games, I loved the style, I loved the properties that they had. Um, but I didn't... Like, the Saturn was just such a... I don't want to call it a failure, but it was a failure. And it was a failure because they pulled the plug on it like really early. Way too early. Focus on the Dreamcast. Yeah. And that's a Bernie Stolar decision. And I remember owning a Saturn at the time. And fuck me, man. I've waited 20 years to complain about Bernie Stolar. You might as well. You have the platform now. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. This is going to be cathartic. So that asshole canceled everything for the Saturn in like 97, two years after it launched. He's like, we're going to let out a trickle of games in 98 and that'll be it. And there was an entire year, entire year of no Sega games in the US. Entire year. Like, I mean, I get it, dude. I get that you want to focus your resources on the Dreamcast and great job with the launch. Great job, Mm -hmm. right? But going forward, like that year without any Sega at all, that doesn't exactly build goodwill. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in order to get my gaming fix, obviously, I got a PlayStation, like everybody else. Yeah. And I never looked back. I mean, don't get me wrong. I did get a Dreamcast eventually. Mm-hmm. But, man, oh, man, I was I was pretty irritated because there were some great games in Japan. Like, the Saturn was pretty steady there. And there were some games. All they had to do was localize them, and they didn't. But but Paul, I mean, you can, you can't just put it on the on the shoulders of Bernie Stoller though, because I'm dude, one hundred percent Bernie Stoller. <laughs> Look, I mean, it, it built terrible terrible will. I mean, at this point, no one trusted Sega because they had abandoned the Sega CD, they had abandoned the thirty two X, and now they had abandoned the Sega Saturn. You know, and on top of that, it was an expensive console. So you were expecting to get at least five years of support, and you didn't get that. You know, three years, not even three years on, you were already they were already pulling the plug and i Mm -hmm. totally get that but the reality is that the saturn was a loss leader the saturn was so expensive to make because it had two gpus and two cpus it was a shady shady architecture and it was terrible to develop for and so they realized very early on this is not going to be able to compete with the playstation and we're losing money on every single console yeah. Um, and so why are we going to keep incurring and going deeper down the hole rather than just trying to hit the reset button? And I get it from a customer relationship point of view. It was fucking horrible. But at, when you think about it from a business perspective, it made all the sense in the world. 
I would have at least not canceled the, the final games and just try to, you know, carry on, you know, kind of hobbling on until the Dreamcast came along. That's probably the best way to have done about it. But I don't know the financials at the time. Maybe they yeah. couldn't have made it. Yeah. And the rea- well, I mean, look at look at Microsoft now. Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, like, look at Microsoft now. The Xbox One, distant third, right? We don't have sales numbers for it, but it's. I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume that they're selling like hundreds of units now yeah. per week. Oh, probably but, probably thousands. I mean, uh, certainly not even hundreds in Japan. I mean, in Japan, no, it's no, probably like Japan, five. Japan, it's like dozens, if that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, but they're still releasing games. You know, they're still supporting it. If I owned an Xbox One, I would not be starving for games to play. Because you at least have right? the third-party support. I, you yeah, know, at the very too, least, right? you have the Xbox One X that gives you better quality, you know, with respect to your third-party games. The Sega didn't That's have the, that. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't, but they also weren't thinking the way Microsoft is. And to be fair, their pockets are not nearly as big. I was Absolutely just about not. to say yeah. that also Microsoft has like more money than God, so Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Stoller wanted Stoller wanted Microsoft to buy Sega. You know, he, he that, that's something that he was pushing for a while and it never got anywhere. So, Paul, you would have yeah. been even more pissed <laughs> than Bernie Stoller if we were talking about the Sega, the Microsoft Sega or something. Um, <laughs> Gosh, that seems impossible. I already dislike him so much. <laughs> We've already talked about the original Xbox kind of being the Dreamcast too. So, if you want to listen to more about that, just go back to our episode with Rick. I'm um, just, just going to leave uh, Bernie Stoller on, on one quote. Uh, maybe this is a little bit of an insight into the, into the man's mind. And quote marks, I felt that everybody wasn't strong enough to do their jobs, he said. (laughs) I fired most of them, Uh. then I wanted to rebuild the staff. And he's talking about Sega US. It's like that pretty much says it all. Oh fuck that prick! It's like they, it's like they interviewed <laughs> Satan. It's like they went down to hell, it's and like, they went down to Beelzebub, and then like, how do you feel about Sega? It's like that's what Paul, happened. It's like they interviewed Bill and Beer. Like that's exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Arnie, Arnie, what about yourself and Sega? Where were you? Uh, my relationship to Sega was very different to Paul's in that I'd only played the greatest <laughs> Sega console of all time, the Sega Nomad, exclusively. <laughs> Um, so by this point, I think I had probably used like 5,000 triple A or double A batteries. Um, Mm -hmm. but no, so I, I, my relationship with Sega was very tenuous. Like I was not sort of in the zeitgeist of the Dreamcast. Like I didn't get like the marketing did not reach me. I was sort of entrenched in Nintendo 64 PlayStation at that time, uh, I only found out about the Dreamcast when I went to a buddy's house and he had it and I got to play. It must have been later in the life span, I think, because I the first game I played was Jet Set Radio and then Crazy Taxi. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and just just to point out, you did say Jet Set Radio. So one point to you. I well did. Done. I did Thank say you. Jet Set Radio. Thank you, I'm totally going to miss that point now. I'm going to miss that point. Yeah, I, I was pretty much the same in terms of Sega. I dropped out after the Master System. Um, mm-hmm. I It was either the SNES or the Mega Drive. I asked for both and I got the SNES. So that was mm-hmm. it. That was done for five, six years. And I went straight into the PlayStation. I had a cousin who had that. So PlayStation influenced me there. Good old pre-social media days. Straight into the PlayStation. And yeah, Sega just really, they just, dro- they just dropped off. Um, for the Dreamcast, yeah. what really hit me was the was the marketing. They even in Europe they went huge, absolutely huge for this. So, um, and I think you guys probably were aware of it back then. But in Europe, Sega was uh, an r- incredibly big player in the market. So, oh yeah. So what they were doing, they were also using 
uh, any marketing opportunity they could. So even my local football team, my my club Arsenal, we had Sega on our away shirts and Dreamcast on our home shirts. And I think two or three other clubs around Europe did the same, had the same thing. So Sega really threw money at this. Yeah, I really, I really want that kit. It's. I mean, I've got. I've got a few of them, and I'm not giving them away for anything. So good luck. Good luck. <laughs> but, uh, you have well, like some of the Sega and, kits. And since, and since Jeff is avoiding me because I tend to digress too much, I'm just going to mention my experience. <laughs> 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 um, I came into. I came to the United States on September 18, 1999, and so nine days after the release of the Sega Dreamcast here, and so right when I arrived here, the Dreamcast was all the hype. And so I went to uh, someone's house, and they had just gotten the Dreamcast. And I remember the first game I ever saw was M- NFL 2K, and it was I skipped the Saturn entirely. I never saw a Saturn game. I never saw a Saturn running. Yeah. I had never even seen a Saturn until I got one. Yeah. Um, in the person uh, and in the plastic, Let's not say the flesh. <laughs> um, and uh, when I saw NFL 2K, I remember very vividly that it was one of those snowy fields and it was kind of gray and hazy. And I just remember thinking this looks so well defined. This like the 60 frames per second. I didn't know at the time that it was 60 frames per second, but I thought it looks so smooth um, mm-hmm. and it looks like something entirely different from what I was used to with my PS1. Um, and, and it really was a huge leap forward. Like you can't understate the fact that the Dreamcast was just so early out of the gate. You know, it was a full year, two years in the case of Japan before the PS2. And it was already doing and pulling those types of graphics. Yeah. Um, and so after that, I saw Sonic Adventure and I saw the whole whale and the running and stuff like that. And it just looked wild. I mean, I knew that I wouldn't be able to get it because it was expensive, and at that point, I think the PS1 was a little bit cheaper. Um, I think it was going for like $99 at the time or something. Um, and I just ended up with a PS1, and the, the Dreamcast didn't really have enough games at the time to really buy into it. I was just accustomed to the PS1, but I was still very, very impressed. And it wasn't until uh, two years later that I actually traded my PS1 for a Dreamcast with one of my friends. And mm. to this day, I think that's one of the best trades I've ever made. Yeah. Because he gave me <laughs> yeah. all the games, including Shenmue. Um, <laughs> and I got so much out of it. And all I had to give back was just a PS1 that was probably dead two years later. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, my Dreamcast is still sitting here right next to my my uh, television. So, yeah. So yeah. I have a soft spot for the Dreamcast, I would say. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's one thing I, I did mention that I'm sure we'll talk about later was just like when i first saw it it was it's such a cool looking console like looking back on it i'm sure when i was younger i thought like the nintendo 64 also looked cool but the sega dreamcast was kind of on a different level like i like the design of it i like the way that you know that like little orange light at the front i thought looks like kind of futuristic and it wasn't until i picked up that controller and it gave me like stigmata on my hands or something (laughs) that i was like oh fuck maybe this thing isn't like perfect but even the controller, I was like, I like the colored buttons on it. I like the VMU, which was super dope. Um, yeah. Like, there was just, there was an allure to that console. Yeah, I, I think that I didn't even notice the controller that much when I first got it. I yeah. I didn't even realize that the cord was from going from underneath it. Oh, my God. Uh, which is I did not notice awfully, that, but now. Absolutely awful decision. <laughs> um, I just thought 
this whole VMU thing is really damn cool. Um, and I didn't even realize that, hey, you don't have a second analog stick. And yeah. the analog stick that you do have, again, will give you stigmata, as Arnie just mentioned. <laughs> um, so I, I think at the time, it just looked cool all around. And there weren't that many white consoles. I mean, I yeah. think like yeah. the Mark III, maybe? Um, yeah. Well, the PS1, like the tiny, tiny one was white. Or I, I guess off gray, maybe. Not quite. It was off gray, and on top of that, that one hadn't been released by then. Yeah. Um, it was only released in 2000, um, which was another death knell for Sega, which we can talk about later. Yeah. Um, mm. But in any case, I'll kick it back to Jeff because he's already looking at me disapprovingly from <laughs> Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. I think one of the things that we can go through is is the hardware itself. Um, I think that's always your first exposure to a console. Uh, the first time I saw it, um, and this is this is where I get to show off a. It, I was in Akihabara in Tokyo in March of 99. Um, it was my first ever time there. And I just remember the streets where the gaming shots were just all had Dreamcast outside it and they were all showing mm-hmm. Sonic Adventure. It was one of the most amazing yeah. things that, that I'd seen, that I'd ever seen, I guess, in terms of video games. And I was super yeah. lucky that I went to the Tokyo Game Show of when it used to be twice a year. I went to the spring 99 one. And Sega were there showing off Code Veronica. So, like... That's amazing. It was, it was in, like, I was just bombarded with, you know, sensory overload. And when I was in Akihabara, yeah. just looking at these Dreamcasts, I think it was at that moment, like, deep planted in, you know, in back of my head of, like, I'm going to need to get this console. And you're absolutely right. Like, yeah. holding, a, holding the controllers, like, I didn't care how bad it was. It was, I was, I was, it was an incredibly good 3D Sonic. Yeah, I mean, at the time, like, I didn't care. Like, the games were just so visually, like, appealing, like you said, and then playing them. I mean, they played well. They made good use of the control scheme that they had. Um, I'm sort of coming at it from looking back on it now. (laughs) But, yeah, no, like, when I played the Dream... When I got to sit down and play the Dreamcast, like, I was all about it. I was 100% in. I was like... I probably won't own this console, but I will come to your house and I'll play it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I liked it, man. I liked I liked the look of it. The controller, yikes! I, sorry, but like the control. I mean, as you guys are aware, the controller is just a gigantic fail. Yeah, but the uh, the actual look of the console and you know everything like it booting up and the menus and all that. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty slick. I, I like it. Well, well, yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things that I discovered a lot of fun facts to the Sega Dreamcast and all of the different pieces to it. One is that the boot up music was done by Ryuichi Sakamoto, which is one of the you know most famous composers in in Japan, um, and he's also an actor, etc. He was in a David Bowie movie, etc. Um, but he's actually kind of a pretty big deal. And just the fact that he just did the sound, the sound for the <laughs> opening, seems to me to be like Sega just like throwing money at stuff. Um, it really does. <laughs> but and the, and the other thing is, Kenji Eno actually designed the swirl. Kenji mm-hmm. Eno of D Fame, of uh, D Two, um, of uh, Enemy Zero. He actually designed, like, Sega was hosting, like, a competition, you know, for developers to, like, propose some of their logos, etc. Yeah. And Kenji Eno just submitted his, and it turned out to be the swirl. Interesting. Um, so, to the, so wait, know, in Japan, is it the blue swirl, or is it the orange swirl? I think it's the blue swirl. No, no, okay. no. It's so the blue? It's, it's, nope. it's the orange. It's the orange. The only, the only difference is in ah. Europe, we got the blue one. Um, I found out it was because there's a, a German company called Tivola. And they had a ah. they had a similar logo, so copyright or trademark infringement, so they just changed the color up. 
I see. Oh. See, I'm with Ozzy in that I prefer the orange swirl, but I like the blue European game cases more. I think no. yeah, those, those yeah, were the best. Come on. No, I, 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 I disagree. Like, I like those cases. I think they're I, I mean, cool. they look good, but yeah. they're so frail, dude. They're I mean, so, so yeah, frail. they're terrible. They're but, worse than the PS1 but aesthetically, ones. aesthetically, I think they look better. <laughs> No, I said it yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, we actually needed big cases because all our manuals come with like eight languages, so we <laughs> needed them big. But they were they were so fragile. They were so fragile. That's a fair point. Yeah. So Jeff, maybe you can take us through uh, some of the history leading up to the Dreamcast. Maybe I can. Maybe I can't. Let's have a look. <laughs> so basically, in terms of leading up and getting us to the Dreamcast, um, you've got as, well, as you guys. You kind of blitzed through all of my notes in the first 10 minutes. But what you've got is a, <laughs> is a series of failures from on Sega's part. Um, and I think, again, it's a lot of it is linked to customers just didn't have faith in it. So if you've got consoles that you're not supporting anymore, then it's like, well, why should we reinvest in your brand? And I think when we look mm-hmm. at what Nintendo, what they occurred with the Wii U, where they were successful, at least they had a lot of brand loyalty, whereas I think Sega burnt a lot of their bridges. I mean, when you look at the sales yeah. of the Dreamcast over its whole lifetime, it actually falls below the Saturn um, and the Wii U. It, it only sold uh, around 9 million units. So it wasn't it wasn't a successful console. And a lot of that is because of the, and you guys mentioned it just now, a lot of the, mm-hmm. in my opinion, quite frankly, weird decision-making. So yeah, the swirl is that really an iconic, visually engaging brand symbol? No, it's. I mean, no. Twenty years later, sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Exactly. I, I think Twenty it's years great. later, I love it. <laughs> I would have gone with the swirl. I don't need Sega on there. Um, but then again, I'm not a CEO of Sega or anything. But but this is this is all part of the theory that Sega oh, tried yeah. to limit the amount of Sega on their products because they know that people associated the brand with. You know, a little. Not, I wouldn't say failure, but a little bit of you know ambivalence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were a little schizophrenic at this point. Like Paul was saying, you go through this many consoles. I mean, past the Genesis, you're talking 32X, Sega CD, uh, Nomad, Saturn, Nomad, Game Gear. And we're not even talking about the Neptune, which never actually released, which was the other thing that they were going to do, right? Or no, didn't the Neptune become like the 32X or something like that? That's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're yeah, talking about yeah, yeah. this many things in a very limited time span when it concerns like actual hardware life cycles. Like I can't blame even Sega fans for being like, I don't know if I want to do this again. Like there's only so many times you can get on the ride before you're like, this sucks. But ultimately, Arnie, I mean, I think what you have is something that was prevalent in a lot of game companies back in the day because I think that a lot of game companies had people that came from other businesses and mm-hmm. they didn't really know how to handle video games. And yeah. a lot of them, like those at Konami, kind of stumbled into it because they just had very good talent um, in their stables. Yeah, And I think a very common theme during this era is just the hubris and the ego of different characters. Mm-hmm. And and you have not only the Bernie Stolers in the US, but also, you know, the Japanese in Sega of Japan, they were super egotistical, you know, to the point that they killed off their potential partnership with their partnership with 3DFX 
um, just because 3DFX was going through an IPO and they unveiled the contract before Sega announced it. Yeah, yeah. And so they were later sued, you know, because of that. And they invested in this unknown, you know, basically ship, you know, with, oh, wow. you know, with NEC basically being the one that provided it. And that was one of the reasons why they had a rough Japanese launch because it started failing. Yeah. The ship started failing. And so, they just had a ton of hubris, I think, and you had a lot of minds clashing. You know, you had Bernie Stoller on one side saying, kill the Saturn, and then you had the principal shareholder uh, saying, you know, the future of Sega is not in consoles. Mm-hmm. We need to diversify and put all of our games. Software is really where it's at. And yeah. so everyone had a different mentality of where they wanted to take Sega, and all of them were just fighting tooth and nail to get their way. So how could that not result in absolute disaster you know meanwhile <laughs> nintendo for everything that they are criticized for everyone followed the company line yeah everyone yeah. absolutely followed whatever Yamaguchi said that's what went and that's what made the difference between surviving or not because by all accounts if nintendo had been run like sega they'd be dead as well yeah absolutely dead yep. um, oh, yeah because they don't have the pockets of a microsoft or a sony yeah if you if you look i mean we, you could go way way back in sega's history but sega very much gave autonomy to the different geos to say like do what you need to do to make this a success so you know in in yeah. the arcades in the uk set, we had a lot of you know us and, and uk developers and programmers and software but sega really were a home console whereas in in japan as as we all know mm-hmm. for all the uh, amazing photos that we see online sega's an is really the massive arcade brand so they they yeah. definitely allowed geos to to kind of have a little bit of freedom but then, as you say, when you then get the conflicting, uh, basically at uh, at a VP level, people conflicting with opinions, as soon as they don't know what direction they're going in, that's when any mm-hmm. brand, any company, that's when they fail. So that's, yeah. that's yeah. ultimately where, you know, it looks like Sega, from a structural point of view, just had too many chefs with too many too many ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. And, for all, and for all the mistakes that Sega made, I, I will give you something. They did a lot of things right for the Dreamcast. And unfortunately, they were too far ahead of their time. Yeah. You know, including a modem, yeah, you know, exactly. focusing on online play. All those things were things that would become mainstays in the future. Having a terrific launch lineup in North America, um, making the console compatible with the Naomi board, arcade board, which made it very easy to port games, even Capcom games, which... You know, the Dreamcast had a lot of Capcom Indeed. support because they were so easy to port from the arcade, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're coming off of the PlayStation 1, which could barely pull off like Street Fighter versus X-Men. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a huge change. It, w- it would actually give you all the capabilities. You know, when developers nowadays talk about being freed from the shackles of hardware constraints, that's what Sega was doing at the time. They yeah. really were, yeah. like, they were shooting for the moon and and they had to die for it because it was just not cost effective. Mm-hmm. But they really pulled out all the stops with this console. And that's what we're going to go over in, a, in the next part. So we're going to take a break here and then we're going to come back and we're going to start looking at the games.
And we're back. So yeah, like we just said, we're going to go straight into the launch and all the games and titles and all the excitement that came out of there. So we actually have a little bit of storytelling on this one. So Paul, you have something? Oh, not a big deal. Um, no, I was working at EB Games at the launch. And I remember the launch lineup being super impressive. Um, I picked up my console right at midnight that night. It, the launch was actually a big success, a lot of fun. A lot of people came in and we talked about Sega and it was very happy. And you kind of got to see what games everybody was buying. Mm -hmm. and, oh, you're getting that. And oh, you're getting this. Um, I got mine and I don't know about you guys, but like to me, the three most important games were Sonic because Sonic. Mm -hmm. Soul Calibur because it was Absolutely. unexpected and fantastic. Yeah. And NFL 2K. Yeah. yeah. I thought was like especially when you actually see it on the screens, I yeah. think NFL 2K was a very big deal. That was a great troika and and you know, I know that that Anthony wanted us to talk about this, um but I think the fact that EA spurned um Sega and said we're basically not going to develop on your console because we want to be the sole provider of sports games on the console and Sega mm -hmm. said well we just bought visual concepts for a ton of money and we really have a lot of faith in them and we think that their games are going to be just as good as Madden yeah. so that's not going to work out um, yeah. and EA just saying well screw you you know that was a huge one to punch back to EA from Sega's part because if you look at NFL 2K, I mean, it just looked miles beyond what you were getting with Madden. It, if yeah. all things being equal, if everyone had a Dreamcast and everyone had a PlayStation 1, they would have gone NFL 2K any day of the week over Madden. I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just, it, it's the first sports franchise, the 2K series, that actually gave EA a run for its money and actually made EA sweat. And it got to the point where eventually EA had to buy the NFL license in order to kill the NFL 2K franchise. Because by that point, I don't know if you recall, but circa 2003, when NFL 2K started being ported to all the different consoles, EA was actually having trouble because they were getting lesser reviews than the 2K series was. And everyone agreed that NFL yep. 2K3 and NFL 2K4 were the top of the line. Like they mm -hmm. were the football game to get. And so EA was like, well, we're just going to throw some money around and put them out of the competition, which is absolutely absurd. And you could kind of trace that point to the current scenario of sports games, you know, because mm, that completely yep. changed the dynamics of sports game from that point forward. Yeah. Um, and we all knew it. We all knew it even back then. Yeah, as yeah. soon as EA did that, I was like, oh, fuck. Now we're going to have, a, you know, a stagnation. Now we're going to have a future with mediocre. I, I shouldn't say mediocre. It's not like the developers aren't trying but competition spurs innovation, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you don't have competition, then, you know, you're going to have Madden, you know, 2014 and 2015 and 2016, and you're going to be stuck with it, and it's going to be whatever they want it to be, and you don't have a choice. Yeah, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. That's basically what you have right now. That in, is in, exactly In it. the sports yeah. arena. And, and I, I remember everyone mourning the death of the 2K series because we knew that this was the top of the line. You know, same, yeah. same with the NBA 2K. NBA 2K now, it's the only series that stayed on, you know, that actually survived. And eventually Sega sold, sold off visual concepts and mm -hmm. it was acquired by Take-Two. But that, that NFL 2K, it can be understated how important that was. And when you really think about it, 
The launch lineup in the US had something for absolutely everyone. It had racing games because they had Tokyo Extreme Racer. Mm-hmm. It had Flag to Flag, which I also played. That was one of the first games I played because it came in one of the demos uh, for the Dreamcast. And I remember being in the cockpit of this F1 formula car and <laughs> I was just blown away. It was like I could look in the rear view. To me, that was just mind blowing. And yeah. coming of Gran Turismo, which was absolutely fantastic. You know, this game was so much faster, but it also had shooting games with the House of the Dead 2. It had the sports games. It had fighting games with Ready to Rumble Boxing, Power Mm -hmm. Stone, Mortal Kombat. I mean, it's a great lineup when you really think about it. And let's not even mention Soul Calibur because Soul Calibur was the reason to have Dreamcast. Yeah, it was for me. It was the only game I got at launch. I mean, you know, I only had so much cash, right? Mm -hmm. $199 is still $199. (laughs) And, you know, I was still like, what, 20? And working Working at at EB Games. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But man, I took Soul Calibur. So I think I left the store that night uh, about like 2.30, 2 o'clock in the morning or something like that. Oh, wow. And I got home and I played Soul Calibur until 5, like immediately. And... Oh my god, that game was fantastic and unexpected. Yeah, absolutely unexpected because Soul Blade, which was the predecessor, did not really compete with Tekken. Um, I I love Soul Blade; it's one of my favorite games, uh, or Soul Edge, however they call it, um, in other territories. Um, it was one of my favorite fighting games on the PS One, and I kind of attribute that just to the intro. The intro is so amazing. Um, but Soul Calibur was not expected because Tekken was the flagship Namco franchise. Um, for fighting games. And here comes Soul Calibur with its weapons-based combat, and it became the fighting game. For that moment in time, it became the fighting game to go. That was what everyone was competing in, and that was what everyone wanted to play. If you went to an editorial uh, game review website, I mean, uh, magazine or anything, Mm. pretty much they were doing the reviews, they were reviewing games, but after hours, they were all playing Soul Calibur. And and they would freely talk about it. Everyone just wanted to play Soul Calibur. Yeah, I mean, the launch lineup for this is, I mean, just in the number of games, but also in sort of what Ozzy was saying, the variety of stuff is very impressive, especially compared to, you know, when we're talking about maybe the N64's launch or I think the PS1 had a decent launch, but I think this nah, might not be as much, Not as much as this one. I would Yeah, this no, no. Yeah. This is great. And I mean... Good, but not as much. Yes. Yeah. And Paul obviously hit on the big three. Um, but even when you look back on this list, like... Just those little gems that maybe at the time people were like, I don't know what this is. And now they're really good. Like Power Stone is, to me, probably the game from this lineup that most people were probably like, the fuck is this? And now it's like one of the most beloved Dreamcast (laughs) games. Um, But even stuff like... Like, for me personally, like, I loved Hydro Thunder in the arcade. I love Hydro Thunder as so, well. Yeah. well. So, if I had seen, like, that I could play Hydro Thunder at home, like, I would have been all over that immediately. And, 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 and now that you mentioned Hydro Thunder, we should make clear that Sega may have missed out on EA, but it developed a very good relationship with Midway games. Yeah. And so Hydro Thunder, and since Midway had a lot of arcade experience, it was very easy to translate their games from the arcade down to the Dreamcast. Mm -hmm. And so you had Hydro Thunder, you had Ready to Rumble Boxing, you had NFL Blitz. All those games were Midway games. And, you know, you were were spoiled for variety, really. Do you agree, Jeff? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at what Japan and what Europe got... 
the North America, you guys were absolutely spoiled. You got some amazing arcade games there that would have just turned any head. Uh, yeah, as you guys are saying, I don't know why why the EU. I don't know why the EU got so much fewer titles, so many me, fewer me. titles. I, know, like, it is, I mean, there's is always so difficult. There's always extra licensing issues. There's always extra language options that we have to input in, into the games. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, you can always. I mean, I think we're going to see that through the whole episode today. Like everything traces back to bizarre decisions or decisions that led to a lot of the downfall of this company. And I would say perhaps the North America got, got too many games. Uh, maybe. And then, and then you had kind point. of a drought afterwards. Yeah, because and yeah. Then you, you know, yeah. Yes. You're, you're not going to buy every single game where if you drip feed, if you kind of go, okay, well, here's, you know, uh, here's Sonic Adventure for launch. Absolutely, there's a Sonic Adventure. But to immediately give Soul Calibur, which is like a first grade, high quality arcade fighter, as well as House of the Dead 2, and you're going to sell mm-hmm. the light gun with it, I think you're asking a lot from consumers. You're asking a lot from parents to kind of go, here's all the games to purchase. And what happens? Excess yeah. stock. Christmas comes around. You guys have Black... Were you guys having Black Friday back in 1999? Show my cultural yeah, ignorance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Suddenly, yeah, yeah. you've got a console at, at markdown price, not making a single dollar from every sale, and you've got more software mm-hmm. on the shelf that you know than, you, than, than stores know what to do with. I think that this yeah. this really doesn't help. Absolutely, there could have been a, a few. I would have swapped out maybe Pen Pen and maybe Sega Bass Fishing. You'd kind of go, okay, <laughs> let's swap those ones out for some better games. But I think Europe, we had a slightly different strategy going on, and we did get those games. We, yeah, perhaps. It's, I think we didn't get the. Uh, I mean, NFL was a, was a tough sell back here uh, in yeah, those days. Sure. It's getting. It's a really big sport here now, especially where I work. We're we're really trying to push that that sport. But I think mm. the EU, because by the time I picked up my Dreamcast, it would have been, uh, I reckon then, do, 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 I reckon late to, late 99. And by then, I had more than enough games to choose from. Mm. Yeah, but, but let me just say, Jeff, I mean, the Dreamcast is supremely interesting because its launch is a study in contrast. You can actually see how different strategies worked in different regions of the world and what would have unfolded if they had done it a certain way. And so when you look back at Japan, where it was released on November 27, 98, you know, you only had three games, which was Godzilla Generations, Pemp and Trisalon, and Versa Fighter 3 Team Battle. Yeah. And, you know, I think the big failure there was the fact that the only worthwhile game out of those was Versa Fighter, which in and of itself was an inferior port of an arcade title and not the best Versa Fighter game to be released. Yeah, um, actually the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I would say the worst one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's not a bad game, I would say. But, you know, when you're comparing it to Godzilla Generations, and, and, and Paul, please just allow me to speak about Godzilla Generations for a moment. Oh, I, I can't I, wait for another rant. <laughs> I, I mean, you look at this and, you know, imagine they try to achieve the video game equivalent of a guy in a rubber suit. You know, that's exactly how it looks. Like, if that was in a video game, it would be... A block in a rubber suit, essentially. That's how Godzilla Generation looks. It looks horrible. And probably the worst camera ever devised by a computer or man. And probably (laughs) the worst one that will ever exist. So, I don't know. It was just kind of a stillbirth. They also had to re- had to have a lot of returns, so they, they had chipset failures in uh, after launch. Mm-hmm. So the first wave of consoles, major issues. So you've got a lot of brand destruction yeah. there going on in Japan. 
and they had a shortage. Yeah. And so they, they because of the ship failures, they had a shortage where they estimate that they lost about two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand sales of consoles. Yeah. I mean that's that's pretty big. That's particularly insane. when you're trying to weather the the end of year, you know, fiscal year. That's that's pretty huge. So I think they were just completely, you know, withered by the time that they released in Japan and it was just like, okay, well, North America's or Hail Mary to give a football term. Which is interesting because outside of the Genesis, I want to say that North America has never really been Sega's big market. Like they've they've never won, they've never been winning in console sales there against Nintendo and definitely not against Sony when they sort of entered the ring at that point. But that's why I think, uh, Arnie, that's why they just did away with the Sega branding. They wanted to position it as a new console. This was a new experience. You got to get yourself into the mentality of the times. This was the end of the millennium, Mm. you know, and, and that was a big part of the 999 marketing. Because it was like, this is the future and you're going to experience it beforehand. And forget about Sega. That's old school. This is what you want. A Dreamcast, a machine that can look into your dreams. Mm. That's really what the branding was about. No, what I really wanted was Segata Sanchiro and they didn't give me that anymore. Oh, that I know. Sad. I know. He couldn't save but the Saturn, he... so. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> mean, he, he died so the Dreamcast could live. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, like you had a lot of people like me at the time, who had a lot of fond memories of the Sega Genesis Mm -hmm. and were really kind of hoping that the Dreamcast would kind of be like the next Sega Genesis. And in a way, it kind of was because you had... Sega did a weird thing back then with their internal development teams where they got rid of all the AM branding Mm -hmm. and just kind of made all their internal development teams sort of second parties. And, you know, they just took the leash off and said, go nuts, guys. Yeah. And so you had this wave of software over time that just kind of felt like the Genesis because the Genesis back then was doing stuff that nobody was doing. It was doing all this, all these crazy weird games. Yeah. And then the Dreamcast is, you know, kind of carrying on that spirit. Yeah. I mean, much like every other console, you know, the launch lineup is not necessarily indicative of what, the actual library will become but in the case of the dreamcast like when you look at the the like i guess high ticket games like the ones that people remember and like really want to get their hands on now they they're very strange they're quite out there like a lot of them are super interesting ideas incredibly fun but yeah sega was was sort of doing whatever they could at this point like i don't think they were shutting down too many pitches no, I think like I mean, for example, like, and I know Ozzy, you're gonna you're gonna love that I'm gonna mention this, but Tetsuya Mizuguchi. Man, I was like, just gonna mention it. Damn it. It's okay. It's okay. You can jump in. You can jump in. But like, the Dreamcast is where it. the Dreamcast is like where where his legend was born, yep. so to speak. You know what I mean? Because like they took the shackles off him. And he was like, sweet, here's Space Channel 5, That's right. here's Rez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? With that infamous uh, controller for Rez. Vibration controller, yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> I, I think it was an absolutely brilliant move on the part of Sega to just say, okay, let's subdivide this, you know, teams into divisions that have a common kind of approach to development. Mm-hmm. And that's how you ended up with United Game Artists, which is headed by Mizuguchi, which was very focused on synesthetic 
music-minded experiences like Space Channel 5 and Rest, mm. like Hitmaker, who were very arcade-oriented with the Crazy Taxi series, yeah. Smilebit, which they were just doing crazy shit. They were they were basically the former Team Andromeda people that did Panzer Dragoon, and then yeah. they would eventually yeah. do Jet Set Radio, and then uh, later on in the Xbox, Gone Valkyrie, etc. Mm. Um, Overwatch, which were very action-based, you know, and they were eventually doing uh, Shinobi and stuff like that. And of course, you had your AM2, which was Yu Suzuki, and Yu Suzuki was doing his Virtua Fighter games, he was doing mm-hmm. Shenmue, which was the most important one, yeah. and Sonic Team, which who came back you know, who Yuhi Naka came back for Sonic Team in order to work on, on Sonic the Hedgehog. I, I think that that... I don't think we're ever going to see a time period in Sega's history or going forward where you're going to have a smush creativity just bursting at the seams from so many different teams. They were all excelling at what they did. Yeah. 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 And without the without the insane amount of oversight that a lot of developers have now, like... It really was just kind of like, all right, guys, have at it. And then you get Skies of Arcadia. Yep. And you know what I mean? Reiko Kodama. I mean, that's that, it, she was basically allowed to do another like fantasy star, basically, because that's what Pretty Skies much. of Arcadia was. It was mm-hmm. like yeah. the game that she wanted to make after Fantasy Star 4. Yeah. Um, and, and you had all these developers doing their dream projects, including Yu Suzuki with Shenmue, which they threw so much money at that game. Oh, and we're yeah. going to talk about it. But yep. it's it's a it's a game that <laughs> that is... Yu Suzuki's baby. Everyone, everyone got to do, got to make their baby. They, they got to do what they wanted to do. Their dream projects. Yeah, There's and you're not so... going to see that again. That's a pretty good mm-hmm. segue because what I want to kind of go forward now is we've looked at launch, but kind of let's look at okay, what pockets or what areas of games were made the console famous? Uh, one of the, I mean, there's many, many areas, but the one I wanted to start with is with the fact that the Dreamcast was that first console with a modem which was mm. huge, even though it was 56K, dial-up, all those issues, and the fact that you had a keyboard, you had to get a mouse, you really felt like you could really surf the web with this machine. Paul, mm. did you use a modem? Were you first on Fantasy Star Online? Absolutely. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I, dude, I was, I was frothing at the mouth for a new Fantasy Star game, all right? Like, I picked it up day one, brought it home, now, by this time, I had broadband. I actually didn't have... I mean, I still had... Um, I had, like, this weird combo. I don't know. I live in Canada where it was, like, broadband, but I could also get 56K, but only for 10 hours a week. So... Or, sorry, for 10 hours a month. Mm-hmm. So, I did... So, I like, I got login info from my friends who were no longer using their, their 56K, you know, allocations. Yeah. And I played Fantasy Star online immediately, used up all of my 10 hours, then used my friend's 10 hours. It was a great game. It actually, I was I was dating a girl at the time who, like, I wasn't, you know, that into. And, <laughs> let's not, and when Fantasy Star... Let's not give her name. <laughs> and when Fantasy Star online... She's probably very happy right now, Paul. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, we're, we're all very happy. We're all very happy. She she made out okay. I made out great. Um, but yeah, Fantasy Star Online came around and it was actually the first time, not the last, but it was the first time where, you know, kind of stopped seeing a girl because I was really into it. <laughs> Not the last time. <laughs> no, 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 just the first. first. <laughs> yeah, but but Jeff, I just want to mention. I mean, I I wanted to mention Fantasy Star because 
we tend to forget about it now, but it was a true phenomenon back then. I think it was the first... It wasn't massively multiplayer because it didn't have as many, you know, instance players as a massively multiplayer game. But I, I, I think it's the first game I recall where it had a huge following on consoles and it felt like a massively multiplayer game. Because mm-hmm. by then you had EverQuest, you had Age of Camelot, a bunch of different MMOs, but there wasn't really one on the consoles that could provide that sort of experience. And Fantasy Star, it provided a more compact experience. It wasn't as sprawling, but it was perfect because you could set up your parties and you could go out and play, etc. Um, and it was a great companion to the online system. For a long time, the only thing you had online was Shushu Rocket, yep. um, which is also a very fun game. Yeah. Um, yep. But, you know, you then later had Quake 3 Arena, which mm-hmm. was, you know, the, the biggest failing of that game was the Dreamcast controller. Um, and the fact that it just couldn't keep up with the PC version. But still, you had a multiplayer you know, first-person shooter, you know, arena-based first-person shooter on your console. No other console was doing that at the time. Yeah, Arnie, did you have any experience with the uh, Dreamcast Online? Uh, no, I honestly, I didn't have experience with really any online gaming until World of Warcraft, and that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> oh, boy, it sure was. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I mean, because for me, I, I don't know. I was, like, the group of friends that I had, we were very much like sort of couch co-op couch multiplayer sort of stuff um so i don't think we even thought about getting online until much later like ps2 and beyond um generations but the idea like thinking back on it now especially because i'm i'm so young so like i would have been eight when the dreamcast came out so like the idea of getting on the internet to play games at that point would have literally like my brain matter would have been on the wall behind (laughs) me at that point like it sounds amazing but i didn't get to experience it compare this to the ps2 and what they did where Mm -hmm. you essentially had to buy an expansion you know an expansion for it and you had to buy the the, the hard drive, mm-hmm. um, the, the the store system, and yeah. it included the modem. Yep. It was incredibly cumbersome. I, I I remember buying it and thinking, this is not going to work for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and meanwhile, Dreamcast, you had a cool little Ethernet you know port right there. You didn't yep. have to do anything else. Just plug it in, and it was only it was fifteen dollars more for for development and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Actually, Paul, I mean, you got to give Bernie Solar the credit. I mean, he actually pushed for this and he got it. He got it approved. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Don't make him say nice right. things about Bernie Solar. <laughs> it's clearly not his favorite thing to do. But yeah, that that's a great example, though, of, of the Dreamcast being ahead of its time, but also how much it packed into that what actually is a small console in that small unit is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever opened a, a Dreamcast up to take a look at the inside? I've seen the insides, but I haven't personally done it. I, 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 I've opened up a Saturn, and I was shocked. I felt <laughs> when I opened up a Saturn, like I needed to be holding it with gloves, like with uh, electric-resistant gloves, because oh, really open. It, it literally looks like something that will blow up any moment. Like, it's, you shouldn't be touching it or opening it. Have you ever looked at a Saturn on the inside? There's just a countdown timer inside. Like, what the I'm, fuck? I'm that serious. Like, it has, like, huge fucking components. I, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. It 
it's weird because it has that, those two CPUs and it has those two GPUs. And because of that, it needs a massive power unit. It has massive transistors. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I've never opened up a Dreamcast, but from what I have heard, it's just one of the most elegant pieces of design that you could ever have. Like, it's one of the most elegant architectures that any console manufacturer has devised. It's probably the most cleanest console I've ever opened up to, to like poke around. Everything is so well divided and it's so clear, so well built. And it's, I mean, you guys know it's a, it's quite a heavy console. That thing is packed. It's, mm-hmm. it's tight. Yeah. But the yeah, way that yeah. they've managed to get it tight, but also actually make sense. And yeah, like, you don't feel like you're about to electrocute yourself when you open it up. Obviously, I presume, Ozzy, you didn't have it, your Saturn turned on when you opened it up. <laughs> <laughs> I kept on checking the, the power cable. I was yeah. like, is it really yeah. off? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's... And, and you know what's also surprising about it, Jeff? That it doesn't run hot. It's not a system that had, for example, the PS1 issues of overheating. But that yeah. fan, and that I, fan was... A no, like I could never hide. I could never hide from my parents that I was playing video games when I should be oh, asleep. Yeah. Forget it. <laughs> you, you you turn on the Dreamcast and you could always remember how it sounds. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, so this is okay. I'm so glad that this happened. It's engaging hyperdrive. Oh my god. So when I was young, I never noticed this, and I think it's because like. We always, like, whenever we were playing games, we were just blasting the television. So, like, we would just listen to music and stuff. But well, you clearly didn't play it way late at night where you were trying well, to no, keep it exactly, from your parents. Because it was at my friend's <laughs> yeah. house. But when I finally got a Dreamcast, like, as an adult, I plugged it in. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I turned on Jet Set Radio, and that fucking thing was so loud. I was like, oh, my God, is, is this thing, like, broken? Like, what is happening I, I, right I now? I think I ask myself whether it's broken every single time I turn on the Dreamcast. <laughs> I always think, is it actually giving up the ghost now after 20 years? Um, I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a really sturdy console. And considering how much you can hack it and how much you can, you can use copy discs on it, I'm surprised that they haven't all just blown up. Oh yeah, and, and and without without getting into too much of a digression here, it also has a Windows CE architecture that can be used. It was never really used by developers because developers thought that it was better to use the the tools provided by Sega. But it actually had a Windows CE architecture that made it very easy to port Windows games into the Dreamcast. So, mm-hmm. again, one of the many things that, that were ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, and also, it's one of the few consoles that you can just play, you know, burn games on, you know, uh, that which I try not to do because I hear that really screws the laser up. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of piracy as well on the Dreamcast, um, mostly because it was just so easy to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was... I, I remember for a time, like, you would go online and a lot of, like, whenever you would buy a Dreamcast, like, if you went on Craigslist or something, it was like, here's a Dreamcast and here's, like, 150 burnt CD games. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was, like, you could buy a Dreamcast and get, like, honestly, no less than, like, 50, like, burn games on it. Yeah, I never actually even tried a burn game on it. I, I try to avoid it, but yeah. you know, if you're thinking, for example, about one of those high ticket items, you know, like let's just say Ikaruga or something like mm-hmm. that. Exactly. Yeah, like you exactly. could just do it. I, I had a copy of Ikaruga. Like I had a burned copy of it because I yeah. knew, let's not kid ourselves. I wasn't gonna import that one. It's way too expensive. Oh yeah. Yeah, on top of that, I mean, the Dreamcast, because of its limited run, it's actually one of the more notorious consoles for having very expensive titles. 
So there's there's a big gulf. There are many, many cheap titles. A lot of titles that are go for like less than 10 bucks. And then it just kind of jumps. There are not that many like 40 to $50 titles. It just kind of jumps from $10 to like $90. No, but the the thing is, and I, I feel like I say this about multiple consoles, but at least in the Dreamcast, like when I try to think of expensive games, I have a hard time thinking of ones that are like, not good like when i'm thinking okay what are the expensive games on dreamcast i'd like to own and it's like mars matrix like bangayo like ill bleed like cannon spike like stuff like that that i've Ill seen people is arguable play. whether it's good or not yeah but uh, yeah, it's an experience yeah. <laughs> it's an experience in and of itself you're, you're, so you're, i would i would count it, it for that like i would want to play ill bleed at some point all right cool I- enjoy your ill bleed Arnie. <laughs> I'm glad that's what you took away from all that. <laughs> Back to the uh, point on the on the on the GD ROMs. I think this is all going to come up at the end when we do a bit of a synopsis of the reason why the Dreamcast died. But yeah, you guys are saying yeah. how easy it is to copy games. It's like okay, mm-hmm. here's a here's a console, here's a hundred games, but we've allowed you to just copy and play anyone you want. It's like software sales are just going to yep. going to disappear. So it was unfortunate yep. because the GD ROM was actually a. Uh, uh, it wasn't as as high storage as the DVD, but it allowed for some amazing games. But you know, yep. we can see that we can see how it all ended up. Um, but yeah, so that's a a good time to uh, take our, our next break, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Welcome back. So here we are, part three. Uh, what we're going to go through now is part three, top three. So this is a moment where we're all going to share our favorite games and hopefully we're not going to divert too much or towards uh, Seaman or Sea Bass Fishing. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Aussie, looking at you. I love bass fishing, right. dude. See, I'm I, already, I know, already, right? already gone. I love bass fishing. I, 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 I heard you like quietly put off bass fishing in your... <laughs> you know, you I, was like, I was like, what is no, wrong man. with Jeff? <laughs> yeah, that's a great launch title. No. I when love we were, bass fishing. When we were talking about like the launch and stuff, I was like, somebody's got to talk about how they own that fishing controller, right? Like, I, I do, and it's to. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Arnie, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking top three games actually played, then it's it's pretty simple because up until now, I like when I was a kid, I only played what my friends had. So it was it was the standards like it was Jet Set was probably number one for me because we were very into extreme sports at the time. And Jet Set was sort of it was honestly more than the actual game. It was just the look of it. Like that was one of those games that. I, I could have just as much fun watching somebody else play as I did playing it myself. Like, just the way that that game was designed and the way that, like, the sort of entire aesthetic of it, the music, the graphics, the characters, like, I was just all in on that game from day one. I think uh, I think it was one of the, the first games that popularized cell shading yeah i i oh, yes. I, 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 I think the before this there may have been one or two 
Um, but since they were part of the PS1, I don't think they were able to really achieve it. Like, I could think about, like, maybe Rakugaki Showtime or something like yeah. that. Fear uh, Effect. Fear Effect yeah, is another Yeah, Fear one. Effect is another one, which also looked fantastic for the time. Mm-hmm. But the stylishness of Jet Set Radio could not be paralleled at that point. Yeah. And from that point forward, we started seeing a lot more cel-shaded games like Cell Damage and a lot of other games that no one remembers anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Jet Set Radio, it had a burst of cool oh it was really just a cool game like the soundtrack was amazing Mm. and i I had to imagine that it was such a colorful game too like yeah that that's a game that would catch your eye from across the room like there has to be some of jet sets music in the back as we talk about this because (laughs) it's it's just completely different and i know that paul just died a little because i said that but We gotta give the listeners what they want, and they want Jetsus music. Like, uh, Naganuma, uh, I forget, Hideki Naganuma, I think is the composer's name. I think the only flaw that the soundtrack had, and Naganuma did an excellent thing, the only thing that it could be faulted for is that it had Rob Zombie's Dragula, which was literally in every Aww. game at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wasn't that on... That was on Crazy Taxi, too, wasn't it? No, 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 no. It no. was that Crazy Taxi okay. was just the offspring and, and uh, I think oh, a few other bands, but God. not Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie was like in Twisted Metal 4, it yeah. was in Sledstorm, it was in a bunch of different games. And it was just, if there was a, a fast-paced game out there, it probably had Rob Zombie's Dragula. Yeah. But other than that, <laughs> let's not give it too much grief for that because it's just, it's a mixture of hip-hop, it's a mixture of funk, it's a mixture of electronica, um, mm-hmm. everything. And the fact that you were playing, that you could actually design your graffitis. Yeah. And, it, you know, it had the disclaimer of, you know, graffiti is art, but don't do graffiti, kids. But <laughs> it just made you feel cool. You were on roller skates. It was feeding off of this uh, extreme sports uh, uh, love at the time with Tony yeah. Hawk's Pro Skater. And you mix that with the coolness of the vibe and also the graffiti aspect of it, it was a perfect game that really should have had a bigger audience than it had. Even though it's a cult hit, yeah. it really should have blown up. Yeah. And I will say, like, to me personally, like, when I was growing up, we skateboarded. We did BMX stuff. Like, inline skates were not cool to us. Hey, and, hey, hey. Get the hell out. I yeah. mean, maybe to you. Inline but skates I inline were, skating, not, dude. were not cool. And Jet you Set Radio... You never went to a roller skating rink, dude. No. I mean, absolutely yeah, not. Ex- exactly. And Jet Set Radio made inline skates cool. Like, <laughs> Jet Set Radio, probably the best game to feature inline skates, I want to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's... I think there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. But, so, uh, what's your second one, Arnie? So aside from Jet Set, the other the other big one for me at least was Crazy Taxi. Like Crazy Taxi was a ton yeah, of fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> every yeah, time, know, right? every single time. <laughs> Don't ever get tired of it. And Crazy Taxi was awesome because it was a single player game that we had so much fun like just passing the controller around for because unless you were really good at it and none of us were in the beginning, like it's a very like get in get out game like you go in you do your runs it probably takes like five to ten minutes depending on how lucky you get uh with your like as you learn the map and stuff but it was very much like okay you're done my turn like i do my thing okay i'm done next person in line and it was so again like very colorful the music was cool it kept you engaged even when you weren't the person holding the controller so that was like a super fun one for us and then number yeah. three... Yeah, wait, wait, wait. But let me mm-hmm. talk about Crazy Taxi real oh, quick yeah, yeah, because yeah. we can't skip that over. Um, <laughs> it was the first... 
It was a game that introduced me to The Offspring, which I have a soft spot for them. They may not be great, but they mm-hmm. were perfect for the yeah, time. They're, yeah. they're definitely okay. I agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And second, it was one of the first games I recall, you know, having product placement that actually worked. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, That's true, right? You could actually yeah. take them to KFC. That's right. To Pizza Hut, you know, etc. <laughs> Records. And yep. Yeah, Tower Records, it made sense for the time. Mm-hmm. And it really made the best use of Sega's arcade heritage and giving you fast-paced games that could be processed and consumed, you know, in bits and pieces. Like, you could just jump into it, play it, and there you go, and you'll be freaking happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Crazy Taxi cannot be understated as a, as a very, very fun title for the Dreamcast. Huge seller, too. Very popular. My favorite memory of that game is uh, people not, well, my friends not realizing that I had it at home on the Dreamcast, and I got, I would say I got pretty good at it like i could i could keep going for probably 12 12 to 15 minutes and just keep going 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 and i learned how to do all the yeah. all the speed boosts and all the handbrake turns and like so you maximize everything and i thought okay mm-hmm. i'm i'm pretty shit hot at this so next time we go to an arcade there's a there's a crazy taxi yeah. machine right i'm gonna show gonna show how <laughs> oh, how no. good i am here we go <laughs> and i i failed within a minute <laughs> and it's like that goddamn arcade difficulty it's like it lures yeah. me in it lured me in with the with the console port but the arcade no. man, it, it completely kicked my ass i i had to that's how they get you every time yeah that's how it got me but yeah yeah um and then number three i mean if i'm really thinking about it it's probably sonic like sonic adventure is one of those games like you look back on it it's not great like it kind of looks like garbage now but at the time I, I like that way that goddamn killer whale was like the most amazing thing I had seen up to that point in my life. I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> it was I don't know. I think it was the it was the the way that whole sequence is framed that you know you get that sort of the feeling of speed, but also the fact that there's an actual killer whale in a Sonic game um that also just blew my mind, but that whole opening sequence was amazing. I remember watching a friend of mine beat Chaos like at the end and turn into supersonic and I was like oh, like my you know, I left my body and like had like an like an out of body experience. Um cuz I mean, it was it was the perfect game for that console at that time. Like it needed to have that that specific Sonic game. So it was cool. But the game I really want to talk about is one that I didn't really play a whole lot, but playing it later on in life, I acknowledge now that it's the greatest port of that game, despite the fact that the controller like actively works against you. But I think <laughs> uh, Marvel's Capcom 2, or not 2, is it 2? Yes, yeah, it's two. It's two. And you're yes. kind of running through all the games we're going to talk about, Arnie, yes. so please just go ahead. Um, Marvel's <laughs> Capcom 2 on the Dreamcast is fucking amazing, and I had I sort of wish that that was the version I had played like when I was younger instead of the um, I think I played the PS2, PS2 version, which yeah. was which was great, but the Dreamcast version just I don't know. There's something about it. It like looks a little bit better to me, and it feels slightly better as well. Um, yeah, I agree. But I yeah, agree. that's a game. That, but you hit on it, Arnie, man. That that controller, God. Damn that controller, man! Like, how many games did that controller like actively ruin? It just, yeah, I mean, it forced like, you to have an arcade every joystick. Capcom yeah, well, that it, it really does. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. People say like, if you have the arcade stick for it, like, 
it's amazing. You know, that's the way yeah, to but play I mean, it. I shouldn't, like, we, we all know that we shouldn't have to oh, buy of course. them, right? Like, yeah. And every Capcom fighter, like, just the removal of two buttons from that Saturn, that sweet, sweet Saturn controller, like, man, oh, man, that, that was a real... That was a real, real miss. Yeah. Real, and you know what? Even for um, even for Virtual On, oh, yeah. like I was super excited for Virtual On on the Dreamcast. Mm. But holy crap, man! <laughs> removing two buttons just like ruined that game. Yeah. yeah. And I, I never felt the need to get an arcade joystick, mm. except for the Dreamcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that yeah. was exactly what I was playing. I was playing Marvel versus Capcom. And I realized I can't do this. Like my thumbs hurt. I this is not comfortable, and it's not accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so I, I just couldn't do it. But there you go. Another game ruined by the Dreamcast's controller. Ah, rip. But yeah, I, I wanted to re- just return on Sonic Adventure. Um, mm-hmm. I remember. So yeah, definitely the Killer Whale. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think if you if if they fixed the camera, I think it would have been a much better game because it, it played fine. Yes. Um, there's a level. I think it's the second level where it's like a whirlwind. It's like an autumn leaves or something like that. Yes. That. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking looks about. Looks absolutely incredible. It still looks incredible today. Yeah. The speed that, that 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 those levels are running at, I think Sonic Adventure mm-hmm. really was an exceptionally good technical game. Yeah, I'll just I, be quiet I think, here. I mean, there's just like there's just so many things like looking back that just kill it. Yeah, like, absolutely. It, no, chief among them, really, the voice work is. <laughs> Oh, nah, I don't think that's the biggest yeah. issue. Come on, uh, man. I, I, I had bigger fish to fry. It makes it nigh unplayable for me at this point. Like, yeah, come on, I Arnie. cannot listen to these people talk you for have more your than like wrong. 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, the controls aren't great, obviously. And But here's the thing. Again, and I don't want to harp on this because this is like my sort of my biggest issue with this console. But again, you have a fucking controller that has one analog stick yeah if you had a second one maybe you'd have camera controls maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation maybe you make it slightly better and more playable yeah um, but i don't think at that time arnie the dual joystick was not a thing the controlling of the camera was not a thing at the time uh, because dual analogs were not known at the time they were uh, really not i mean the ps1 uh, was doing it, had it no? Shock no 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 the dual shock existed uh-huh. But it's still because it was not standard because the yeah. DualShock was not standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it did not the, allow the you to to really take control of the camera. It wasn't until the PS2 era that we actually got to take control of the camera. Yeah, so I'm not going to fault them for that. Yeah, because it really wasn't standard at the time. Playing 3D games at the time, I remember reading the reviews, and every single one of them had to mention the camera. Yeah, because. If you had a bad camera, which most of the games back in the day had, ex- unless you were an RPG, mm-hmm. you know, you made the game barely barely playable. And it yeah. gave you nausea and it was disorienting. Yeah. And Sonic Adventure was one of the worst offenders, unfortunately. As, and you should play Sonic Adventure 2. I mean, neither of them are good games, in my opinion. I And, and I, I honestly think that they had very poor game design. I think the the changing characters, you know, and the changing gameplay styles, not all of them are winners. I think the only yeah, winner that's... really is Sonic. And yeah. I think that it's a game that has no pacing because most of its game ideas are just not that interesting or good. You don't want to well play Big the Cat's fishing minigame? So, yeah, and that's, and that's like the point of it. Right? I think it's a game that we look back fondly upon because we only remember the fast parts. But then you actually play it and you realize, oh my god, like 90% of the game is shit. Oh yeah, you know? like, I mean, it's, it's nigh unplayable <laughs> now. I've said this, like, the boss fights are garbage. 
and the the voice work is terrible. The camera sucks. But I mean, at we're that still time, trying to perfect a Sonic 3D game. Yeah, like, but twenty at that years time, later, we're still trying to figure the fuck out. Yeah, but I'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you. Like at that time, did I love it? Absolutely. Like yeah, of course. Did I see the? I, yeah, did I see yeah. that scene where like the city gets all destroyed and chaos shows up? And I'm like, this is it. We've reached the peak. Like it's never gonna get better than this. Yes. Wow, what a role reversal. Arnie's sticking up for the Sonic game. <laughs> right? oh, I'm on it. <laughs> I, I said it on the last episode where I had to go to bat for Sonic. Like, I don't feel good defending Sonic. <laughs> it, it makes me feel kind of dirty. So, Poor Sonic. I'm back in my element as the resident heel of this region free game. So, so, Paul, Paul, let's, let's, uh, let's crack on. Damn it, Jeff ignores me again. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, man? Honestly, for me, the conversation really just kind of starts and ends with Soul Calibur. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was the first game I got for the system, and it would always be the best game Mm -hmm. I owned for the system. It that's just kind of what it comes down to. It's potentially still the best game in the system. Potentially the still, yeah, exactly. It is superlative in every respect. Every respect. Mm -hmm. The controls are fantastic. The graphics were like. For a launch title, are you kidding me? First like, arcade perfect never, translation. Per, first arcade perfect port. And yeah, like games just never looked better. And the like it had so much replay value. Like it had all these extra modes. The the music was phenomenal. Everything about it was exactly and the depth. Like, oh my god, the depth to that game. And yet, because it's Soul Calibur. No quarter circles, no half circles. Anybody can just pick it up and start playing and feeling like they're awesome. What a what a fantastic game. Like, I cannot say enough about Soul Calibur. And, uh, I mean, I already talked about Fantasy Star Online, but one thing I will say is a game that I had always wanted to play and never did until recently, and I'm so glad I have it now because it's friggin' hilarious, is Dynamite Cop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, Dynamite Cop, like, it's not... Look, this isn't, this isn't a complex gaming experience. It's just a beat-em-up. And it takes half an hour, and that's why it's so good. It's well, a fun it's a sequel to Die Hard Arcade, quick. so yeah. so I think that's what people didn't realize. No, people didn't. It was poorly named, and like, but like in this game, you can, I kid you not, you can pick up a French baguette and use it as a weapon. <laughs> you can you can pick up a basket of apples and throw the apples at your enemies. Like, Paul, Paul. I don't know. Paul, like, have I don't you, think there's anything anymore that I want in a game. Have you ever been hit by, by from a baguette? Have you ever been struck by a baguette? It hurts. <laughs> it and hurts. That... Trust me. I'm near France. Exactly. I'm near France. It's exactly. I'm, I'm legit, to yeah, oh, God, the memories. <laughs> no, but a bag of apples. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay now, Jeff. But yeah. <laughs> The French, like so. for me, for me, it's those two. Yep. And I mean, Ozzy, are you going to talk about semen, or do I just bring it? Up no, now? no, I'm never going to talk about semen unless you bring it up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring the, it up now then. Because the preview, like, uh, like voice clip for this is Ozzy. Like, I will never talk about semen unless you talk about <laughs> put it, it. Put it in a remix. Put it in a remix. There we go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but for real though, like I, I had it back in the day. Yeah, and it's not like good. Yeah, but. It was fascinating. It was so weird, man. And Leonard Nimoy doing the voice, they could not have picked a better oh, voice. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's uh I, I was I was definitely fascinated by that one. I really should take it out for a spin. I still have it. Yeah. I wonder I wonder <laughs> I wonder what it'll What like, it will feel tell like you now. is like you pick me back up twenty years later, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you happen to think what I was doing in all that time. I was actually watching your wife. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) And weirdly enough, I don't even know if you guys are aware of this, but Seaman was like the... That was like the first killer app the game had in Japan. Like, it was a huge deal there. Now, my my experience with Seaman was that I had played Hey You Pikachu, and I decided never again to play in a game where I had to talk to a virtual character. All right. Ever. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, Pikachu, come on. (laughs) We know you love Pikachu, Paul. (laughs) So, Ozzy, do you want to uh, go for yours? Oh my god, you're actually picking on me. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I feel honored. Um, hey, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, I gotta, I gotta interrupt you, but we do have to leave the best till last, so that's why I'm after you. So, <laughs> right, there we go. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Sh- Shenmue. I want to talk about Shenmue. Let me, let me spread the good word of Shenmue. I don't think I had to do that anymore. For a long time, I had to do that. And then nowadays, Shenmue is like being yeah. sold as a remaster. The third part is coming out. I still um, need to play that game. It's a game that changed my life. I, I hate to, to be so grandiose and hyperbolic about it, but it really did change my life. Um, I've, I've spoken about it before, but it's a game that made me feel freedom at a time where I felt very imprisoned. Um, I was going through middle school and everyone fucking knows that middle school sucks, you know? And so I was picked on, you know, I was bullied, you know, and for the first time in my life, you know, I was forced to speak English because I was taken out of the English as a second language program. And so I lost all my friends, you know, and so I had to reinvent myself and speak English while I was at it. And it was a rough time for me. And so to be able to go back home and just dive myself into, into Rio's life, and be able to have that freedom that, that Rio was experiencing while also having the same issues that you have to deal with of like having a bedtime or, you know, having to, you know, manage your responsibilities with the things that you want to do, like go to the arcade and play uh, Space Harrier. I mean, I, I can't really understate how important that game was to my formation. Um, and it was for me, when I thought about the Dreamcast, that was the game I thought about. It was always Shimu, um, which, it's a game that very much of its time, because I think if you play it nowadays, you're going to wonder what the hell people were thinking. Um, I, 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 I will fully admit that it's not a game that has aged well, because one, we no longer have the patience, and two, a lot of the things that it did have done much, been done much better over time. Um, and yeah. it was just the sheer innovation of its time that made it stand out. Um, but that innovation, you know, makes it a very dated game at the same time. Um, but it can be understated how impressive it was for the time. So beyond that, I just want to mention that the Dreamcast was, it had some of the most wonderful treasure games of all time, like Bangayo and Ikaruga. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I mean, Bangayo was released in the EU, and I believe it was also released in North America. Yeah, it was released in North America for the it Dreamcast. Was, yeah. um, Ikaruga wasn't. But those, that one-two punch is actually some of the best, you know, tightly playing treasure games of all time. So, you know, if you don't have the money, just burn them or something because they're really good games. And lastly, I just want to mention Sega Marine Fishing because I, I, <laughs> I can pass this opportunity to talk about, you know, a fishing game on the Dreamcast. I love yeah. Sega Bass Fishing, but man, Marine Fishing, I put so much time on that game. <laughs> And like every good Sega arcade game, it had an awesome commentator. It was like, that's a big one. You know? So I I just had a awesome. ton of fun on that game. I always wanted to get like the Marlins and stuff like that. And, you know, I grew up in Miami. And so 
I, you know, I wanted to be out in the sea fishing, etc. But Sega Marine Fishing gave me an alternative to that. And so yeah. I, I freaking love that game. So I, I very much am a fan of the Sega arcade fishing games. So yeah. those are my three. I don't know if you guys want to follow up on any of that. But with the Yeah, no, just, just Shenmue. Like, Shen, man, Shenmue, like, what a great game. And at the same time, what a horrible like, game. kind of... <laughs> Well, like kind of a failure for Sega too. Like oh, the yeah. development costs on that thing were ridiculous. And as far as I can tell, that was kind of the that was kind of the beginning of the end for Yu Suzuki mm-hmm. and his legacy. Like the Dreamcast was not really outside of Shenmue, you know, as a game, the Dreamcast was not kind to AM two. AM two did not have like No, no you know, they it, it just wasn't it just wasn't kind to them. Like yeah. Ferrari like three fifty five and they had like that uh, that truck driving game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, eighteen wheeler American Pro Trucker. I think it was yeah, what it yeah. was called. And uh, <laughs> Virtual Fighter Three, which we already mentioned, was also not yeah lackluster. The best. Yeah. I mean, especially when you compare it to the great innovation that was being done by the other um, Sega development teams. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it really was a blow to Yusuzuki's legacy. Um, and I don't think he ever recovered from that, unfortunately. Yeah, um, no, I don't think which so is, Which is a damn shame. Um, I mean, he stayed on in Sega for a while, I think until 2008, but he was kind of on his way out, really. Um, yeah. You know, and, and Shenmue started development on the on the Saturn, and then, it, you know, I mean, the decision to go to the Dreamcast was a huge cost to them. Mm-hmm. So it's a game that was in development for over four years, and, and now that seems very normal. But at the time, I mean, to have a two-year development cycle was pretty big. Um, yep. And for years, that was unheard of. And so I think that it, it held the Guinness World Record as the most expensive game of all time for a while. Yep. And it was it was not profitable for them either, unfortunately. They just, like, they just could never sell enough to make up the cost. Yeah. I mean, but how do you sell this? That's the thing. How do you yeah. market a game like Shenmue? Well, I think it was... <laughs> you know, which is kind of like a slice-of-life game. Yeah. I think um, what, you, yeah. what you eventually have to do is put, like big burly Japanese Yakuza in it and make it so I can beat the shit out of people with bicycles. You know, let, let, think... let, me, let me just say something about that, Arnie. Um, and I'm not going to get into too much of a rant here, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. everyone likes to say that Yakuza is a spiritual successor to Shemu. I call bullshit. You know, I agree. I, I, I agree. I, I think that's just, it's cheap and it's just kind of something that someone said at one point and everyone kind of ran with it. Yep. There's very little, you know, other than being able to go to an arcade that <laughs> ties Yakuza and Shenmue together. Shenmue actually has a structure. You actually have a day and night cycle. You actually Correct. have things that you have to do. Things open at a certain time. Things close at a certain time. You have to meet characters at a certain time. None of that. None of that is found in Yakuza. Yakuza is just simply an evolution of Streets of Rage and other beat-em-ups. That's should, all there is to it. I should um, not poke fun at you. I didn't mean to set you off this way. <laughs> I was just trying no, to make a funny. No, but I want to put that to rest because I feel like it's been said over and over and over again, and I call bullshit. Like that doesn't really hold water. Um, and I it's think too easy. Yeah, it's I, too easy. Yeah, it is. I'm you glad that Paul agrees. People like to people like to label and car, uh, compartmentalize because yeah, you know that's what humans are built to do, and so we are built to look to look at Yakuza <laughs> and like 
oh, hey, it's an Asian guy, and he's walking in 3D, and he threw a punch. Well, it's Shenmue 4. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But, but no, no, I do, no, no. I, mean, I, I, I think we're going to be, we're gonna be entering quite an interesting stage with Shenmue 3 coming out soon. I mean, my yeah. my experience with Shenmue, uh, I really enjoyed it at the time. Um, it did take me a long time to understand what the hell was going on, just because, like, as you say, day and night cycles, and should I, mm-hmm. should I be buying capsule toys, or should I be buying... A drink. I guess I'll go for the capsule toys. You should always be buying capsule toys. Um, So there was, it was, I was never really quite sure, like, what's the purpose of this game? The story was there and there was a structure there, but it didn't quite grab me as it it seemed to have done with a lot of other people. I think there's a lot of nostalgia going on with Shenmue. I would say to anyone who hasn't played it yet, I think they're going to find it tough going to get into. Oh, it will be. It, yeah, I, I don't yeah. recommend no. it to anyone nowadays. So, I, I, I have to be objective about it. Mm, it yeah. I, I would say to most people, like if you're interested in Shenmue 3, there's there's some pretty good videos on YouTube which, which condense all yeah. the story. Just watch those and then play the new game yeah. if you have an interest. Because I think you're going to just... It's it's yeah. a game that's good idea. completely connected to nostalgia. Yeah. And, and let's go even beyond that. I mean... The relationship between Ryo and his father, which seems to be very distant, kind of parallel my own relationship with my father. So, you know, without getting into anything deep, you know, mm. it really was a game that I found a lot of parallels with my life, except Ryo could actually do something about it. Yeah. You know, and, and he had a job and he worked in the shop, you know, the 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 shoplift, the, how, how do we... Uh, forklift. Wasn't he like forklift, a forklift, or something? Forklift. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was on this journey to find himself you know kind of find the killer of his father as a way of connecting to his father himself Mm -hmm. and to me that was just such a parallel to my life that again it's impossible to separate my nostalgia for it and the time in which i played it from Mm -hmm. the game itself but under no circumstance would i recommend this game to anyone nowadays (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, ozzy what if i'm specifically looking for a slow plodding kind of game with a day and night cycle where I can go to an arcade and buy capsule toys. If I was specifically looking for that game, would you recommend it then? Just play like Stardew Valley or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jeff, what about yeah, your so top games? Two have actually already been mentioned. So Jet Set Radio, uh, we've, we spoke about it. I think that that is probably the one game on the console that I can just pop the disc in and immediately just like fall into the world that it's set in i absolutely love japan i think mm-hmm. most of us here love the idea of japan and tokyo but like the the visual representation of tokyo in that game it really engaged with me especially at a time when when i just did made my first trip and i was like okay now i can be yeah. in tokyo so that was uh, incredibly important um jet set radio future as well i really liked but the soundtrack wasn't as good as the first one in my opinion but uh it, no, it's still no. mm-hmm. still utterly fantastic and the gameplay wasn't as good either no it was yeah it was i think it was very much just a, a great one-off game and as you say it, it, it didn't get played by enough people yeah, yeah and but you know just radio future was actually that was one of the f- few sequels i was very disappointed by um i think the level design wasn't as good um and the mission design was not quite there so it was a little bit too sprawling for its own good um whereas with jet said radio one which that's a you know a, a, a reason why Jet Grind Radio is better to just say Jet Grind Radio because you can differentiate them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jet Set Radio, it it had a very tight map. You know, every map was kind of self-contained. Yeah, it's quite and small. Jet Set Radio yeah. Future, it went open world, and with that, I think some of that tightness just went away. 
Um, and like you said, Jeff, I don't think the soundtrack was as good. So I was actually quite disappointed at the sequel. Yep. Um, so next up, yeah, same as Paul, Soul Calibur. Uh, again, like I think that that game is still one of the most playable fighters that that you could ever 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 think of, ever dream of. Um, I was going to ask you, Paul, mm. who was your main go-to character? Uh, killer, uh, yeah. Yeah. spamming, <laughs> spamming, uh, cheap. cheap bastard. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. I, I'm I'm owning it, and I wish that I wish that I knew you liked that game when you were visiting uh, here. I totally would have keelicked all over you. Yeah. <laughs> Paul says that, but that's to cover up that he's a low key maxi main. So how dare <laughs> <laughs> Maxi Maxi should be banned in all versions of Soul. I Calibur. love Maxi, <laughs> the best. Uh, we're getting really inside baseball here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Jeff, what's the Grandia last one? Two. So I think this is the first RPG mm. that that's been mentioned on 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 this show. Uh, Grand. Yeah, so I didn't. No RPG talk. I haven't played Grandia. I didn't play Skies of Arcadia, but Grandia Two just mm. captivated me at the worst possible time of my life, also known as exams. So I was. Oh. <laughs> it was just like. I had to get dragged away from that. My my mum ended up banning the console from me for a couple of months because oh, wow. I was playing that instead of revising. So, yeah. but what yeah, what no, a no. great game! It's great to see that it's getting a bit of recognition today with the with that new collection. Even though with I've the heard the, the performance yeah. isn't so great, um, I yeah, picked up the yeah. PS2 version after I've sold my Dreamcast on. I thought ah, I want that back. Picked up the PS2 version. That's got horrible loading times. So like the, yeah. the Dreamcast version is by and far in a way the, the best um but i absolutely yeah. adored the characters adored the voice acting i'm a big anime guy so like the the character art and the way that their uh, characters are represented when they're talking with the with the uh face shots i absolutely loved it had voice acting which yeah. i hadn't seen before or heard before in, in an rpg <laughs> for me yeah it, it ticks so many boxes and uh, and we can we can blame uh, Mr. Bernie Stolar for <laughs> you know putting the clamps on bringing the original Grand. That's right. I'm just saying. Oh, yep. That's right. Yep. Not Absolutely. a not an RPG machine. The the Dreamcast. Yeah. Let me um, just uh, let me just run through a few others that maybe won't get a top three mention, but should be should be mentioned if you in case you want to pick up a Dreamcast. Yeah. So Resident Evil Code Veronica definitely play that yeah. one. Yep. It's it's a fantastic Resident Evil. I know it's Anthony's favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, so shout out to Anthony. Um, it also has some of the best Capcom ports um, that have appeared on a console. So Alpha 3 is fantastic on it. Yep. Um, uh, Capcom versus SNK, fantastic rendition yep. of that one. Um, yes. And and a few other weird Capcom games like Tech Romancer um, that you wouldn't see elsewhere, but also Street Fighter 3, uh, Double Impact, and Third Strike. Yeah. They're also there. You can pick them up. Um, so ready to rumble boxing another good one that showed up in other consoles but was very good on on the dreamcast itself so yeah um just a few others versha tennis uh, yep. another great yeah. one um that doesn't oh, get enough recognition so um yeah yeah so a, a lot of the versha virtual series and 2k series were fantastic so you can't really go wrong with the uh, dreamcast sports games yeah man there was so much like packed into those two years yeah well yeah i one thing i did want to mention very briefly i'm surprised that well paul kind of talked about it when he talked about ikaruga but i think the dreamcast did continue what i've sort of associated as sega being like a very good like a very good place to house like solid uh shooters 
Um, and the Dreamcast had a more limited, but I think very solid, like, shooter lineup. Um, yeah. I mean, when you're talking Giga Wing, Giga Wing 2, Mars Matrix, Gunbird 2, like, yeah. you know, not. And even going, like, sort of interrupt yeah, yeah. journey, like, even going, even after Sega closed up shop, you still had independent developers yep. making shoot 'em ups over the years. Like, you got Border Down, you've got Under Defeat. Yep. I, I just, man, it's crazy. I just picked up Stormwind. Yep. And that was released, I think, 2013 or 2014. Yeah. So it's, you know, so it's it's definitely an excellent shoot em up. It's machine. to be had. And I will not let this conversation end without mentioning one of my low key favorite Sega Dreamcast games, Typing of the Dead. <laughs> um, yes. Which is yes. fucking so much fun. Um, yeah, that game. That game is is so much fun. I love the fact that in Japan they have like dedicated arcade units for it. I don't think they ever brought those over to the West. No, but I don't think so. so. It, that game is just stupid fun. It's like, Mavis Beaconticious typing with zombies. <laughs> exactly, it really is. It is, and it's such a you know it's such a Dreamcast game. Oh right? yeah, it's, it's one of those like weird games. They. Um, you know, they told who who was it that made it? I think it was was it Smilebit? Yeah, it was Smilebit who made it. Yeah, like you know, okay, Smilebit, just go make something, and they're like, great, we're gonna make a typing game. Yep. It, come on, man. When when's that ever gonna yeah. happen again? And even the fact that they changed all the cutscenes to replace the guns with Sega Dreamcast <laughs> yeah. and the Sorry. keyboards, like, oh my god, was so good, so perfect. And that's an that's an amazing segue talking about the undead because we're about to go into the final part. We're talking about the death. <laughs> The, the coffin filled dreamcast that yeah so that's what we're going to go into next so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back the most important part of dance is music so now let us listen to the music and identify the beats One, two, three. but that was too soft Okay, welcome back to the final part of uh, this episode around the Dreamcast. So we're going dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, This is the end. <laughs> this this is the end, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, what a what if we just took the last hour about the games? What a fantastic amount of games, and we could have easily gone on for another five six hours talking about games. Oh yeah, some fantastic titles. But unfortunately, we've also got to look at why potentially the Dreamcast failed. There's lots of reasons in, in, uh, in the, on the internet for that. But also what we want to go through is a little bit of our kind of reflection and where we see the, the Dreamcast legacy going forward. So just some final things around the Dreamcast I wanted to share with you guys. Um, so the, it ceased production on the 31st of March 2001. So when you think it started on the 27th of November 98, that's mm. less than three years. Yeah, yeah, and less than two years for yeah. North America. Yeah, I, I, yeah. it's tragic. Yeah. That's really what it is. But it didn't stop him from putting out a nice little library of games. Right. Yep. I mean, to think that they reduced it in order to reduce their stock to $49, they yep. were basically giving it away. Yep. <laughs> I mean, if, if that's not tragic, I don't know what is. It, it really like makes my heart 
cry a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and we've we've discussed already quite a few of those little decisions and the little things that happened during the really short life cycle that contributed towards its its demise you look at the we're talking about the the, the start the launch price in the u.s how that was meant that they weren't mm-hmm. making any money we're talking about the fact that they had to return hundreds of thousands of units in japan the fact that japan launch didn't even have sonic adventure yeah but, but not only did they have a 199 price but very soon after that, they cut it down to 150. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were making an even bigger loss on all consoles because they were thought, well, the attach rate is going to be great. You know, if people buy the console, they're going to buy the software. And yeah. it just didn't happen. Yep. And mm-hmm. on the software part, everyone's pirating and copying the games. You've got yep. boardroom level dis- disagreements, which is never a good thing, especially for a company that's been struggling for the last five or six years. Yeah. Add that to the pile. And I think as well, there was uh, uh, EA didn't contribute. There was disagreements there. As much as the 2K series did phenomenally well, unfortunately, even though EA produce it produced and for a long time after that produced inferior sports games, they had the licenses, they had the teams, they had the players. And that's what ultimately yep. people wanted. Yep. Yeah, but you can't understate the effect of the PlayStation 2 on it. Oh, I yeah. mean, the PlayStation 2 really drove a shovel no, into I Sega. No, that's DVD. Yeah, yeah. I, it really... Yep. It is one of those things where I, I don't... I, obviously, none of us can say for certain. I, I do think the Dreamcast was the end for Sega's hardware regardless. But the emergence of PlayStation as a solid third entrant in hardware manufacturing, because obviously there had been competitors before this but i think the playstation did something that none of the other sort of people who were trying to get into that space had done before which is they edged out nintendo and sega they sort of made their they made a install base that was large enough that when you look at i mean the playstation 2 was a fucking black monolith of death that was sort of looming over the next console generation because i think they knew it was going to be enormous i don't think they knew it was going to be as big as it ended up being but it was going to be big but sony also oversold it Oh, yeah. You know, Ken Kudaragi yeah. went out there and said, this is a machine that's going to tap into your dreams. You're going to be able to tap into the Matrix. And we're building this thing engine. called the Emotion Engine. Yep. And there were rumors that it could start wars. It yeah. could yeah. Wasn't that a missiles. thing that like, people it, were like, if you get like seven of these together, you can like launch nukes and stuff? Well, I mean, there were actual like genuine concerns as to whether terrorists could get this and yeah. actually, you know, launch missiles. Yep. And I and then it ended up being such a difference. Like it was all hype. I mean, yep. I love the PS2 with a passion. I, I I think it's one of the greatest systems of all time, despite being a weak piece of crap architecture. Um, but it's it was really hyped up to no end. Um, I can't I can't even begin to tell you how much hype there was. Like like I, I was still working at the game store at the time, and like. It seemed like every week there was some kind of PlayStation <laughs> 2 official announcement slash rumor. Yeah. Because all these, all these, like, I remember the the tech demo they showed off. I think it was Squall and Renoa dancing. <laughs> and, like, and they're like, this is in-game footage, and it looks like a CG cutscene from the PS1. And, like... It just wasn't. Yeah, right? and they were like, talking about Toy Story level different. graphics, like you could achieve yeah, Toy Story yeah. graphics on your console. <laughs> but it's and people ate it up, and pe- like, and that's what would, and that kind of that had never happened before yeah. that I saw. But in the where end, a company was like overselling. But in the end, it also had a DVD player. Exactly. 
and there you that's, go. That's what <laughs> right? I, like I mentioned. That, that was the game set match. That was that was. And, and I think as well, Sony, yeah. the brand Sony, was in a very different position to Sega. Sony had quality, especially from the '80s when Sony really became that superpower. Mm-hmm. Everyone trusted the. Everyone yeah. trusted that brand. And I personally, I yeah. still trust the Sony yeah. brand as well. I have never had a PlayStation and console I shouldn't. fail on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you, I, you your... are very lucky oh, because I've had every single one of them fail on me. <laughs> every, I think the PS4 is the first console that hasn't failed on me. Yeah, I, I, I and I love Sony. I, I am one of the biggest Sony supporters. But I was just talking about this with you guys the other day off the off episode that the PS2 is so unreliable it's actually it has one of the highest failure rates of all consoles next to the 360 and i feel like the myth of sony as you know as a stalwart of good engineering i I think it's a little bit oversold because a lot of their engineering tends to be half-baked well i mean we've we've talked about how paul had to keep his ps1 in the fridge because it would overheat so (laughs) bad He, he, yeah. he risked electrical shock just to play Final Fantasy Tactics Correct. because so Sony was couldn't get it. it right. I think, I think no did you say that you had to put yours upside down to make it work? Yeah, I, w- I would put mine upside down, yeah. yeah. Like, so Both, this is, dude, this was, is from the beginning. It was in the fridge and then upside down. That's right. Like, yeah. When was the last time you put a Dreamcast upside down? Never. <laughs> That's what. So all I can say is perhaps Europe, we got all the proper units and the ones that didn't fail. So maybe that's all that happened for us. But so, yeah, so, maybe. so we've, maybe we've gone through what happened, but I want to kind of talk about and find from you guys what you think the legacy is of the Dreamcast, the, the impression perhaps it's made on, on the concert, on the gaming industry itself, and also the future legacy that it's led. So, uh, Paul, what do you think? Well, I think the legacy for the Dreamcast is this sort of like bright flame that you know, kind of burned out really fast. And man, as far as like, I think it's the creativity really. Like when I think of the Dreamcast, especially when we were like doing our notes for the episode and so on, it's really interesting just kind of seeing it all condensed down. And you're like, mm-hmm. man, oh man, there was so much just explosive creativity that went into the games for this thing at the time. And I don't, like I said, I don't think we ever saw that again. No, and, and I think uh, ultimately when we think about Sega. You know, we think, a lot of people think back to their Genesis era, but I always want them to return to their Dreamcast era. I think that their Dreamcast era is the one that I really thought was very out there with experiences that you couldn't get anywhere else. And I want a return for Sega to those times. And it's going to be impossible, but, you know, the type of proliferation of ideas that came up during that time was not something we ever saw again. Mm Mm-hmm. No, no. And I mean, even stuff like Virtua Tennis, right? It's a tennis game, but like we hadn't seen anything quite like it before. And it was fun as hell, man. Like, and it's a tennis game. Yeah. 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 I, I'm always very wary of things like this where it's like it was around for such a short time and it's, you know, the what's there is awesome and it's beloved now. And I'm always like, if it had lasted longer, would it be would it be remembered as fondly? Who knows? But obviously, in the short time that it was around, it made a hell of a of an impact. Like, you know, considering how how much people lose their collective minds every time somebody's like, they're gonna make a Dreamcast too. It's gonna be amazing. Like, oh my god, nobody nobody ever <laughs> talks about like they're making the Genesis two. It's like it's always the Dreamcast two. Like that's the one that people are like, yeah, this is the one. We need it now. And I'm like, 
do we though like can we be thankful for what we got when we got it yeah i'm starting to reach that point yeah. now where like the clamoring for sequels yeah. is like guys we had those games already <laughs> you know what i mean can't we just like play that game again yeah. like there are oh man i can't even think of a specific example off the top of my head but like people people clamor for like you know updates to uh you know eternal darkness on the gamecube for example <laughs> yeah. right yep. and i'm like you know what just play eternal darkness again you can't you know. can't am i am i oversimplifying no this? i think you're right no. because you can't you can't just say like those games are made in moments of time like with certain people like in a certain space and to think that it's it's the to think that it's just let's get all those people back together and do it again like it's going to be great like that's not that doesn't work. But like I do that, have a question. You know? I do have a question. Never the same. Who here is hyped for Streets of Rage Four? I can't even describe it in words. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, you see, yeah. but God. this is what yeah. they're doing. But they're we, bringing but, everyone together. They're trying to bring in all the best people. Yeah, you know. But it's not. It it's it's different. Like if you look at it, it's not like they're like, oh, let's let's make a Genesis game again. Like true, it's clearly they, they're doing its own new. thing. Correct. And so for me, like, I don't have a problem with that. If you want to do it, go ahead. But I have, like, my worry is always that people are sort of expecting the same thing, but more of it. And I'm like, it'll never be the same thing. It's going to be, like, time has passed. Things have changed. Like, things that worked back then don't work as well now. They'll do it a different way. And they can still do it well like it's it could still be good but i feel like people are very attached especially when it's nostalgic things people are sort of like i want to i want this to be the same experience i had when i played the original like 20 years ago and you're not the same person like it's never gonna happen again a perfect example that tony hawk's pro skater yes i agree (laughs) that will never ever happen again no as much as people want a new tony hawk pro skater experience it will never happen again that that was a game like many others, that was of a time with innovative gameplay, mm-hmm. you, you're not going to get it again. Yeah. To Arnie's infinite it. sadness. I know. It really is. <laughs> but but I'm okay with going back and, and playing, like sort of recognizing the faults in those games now. But the feeling that you get from playing them is still the, the feeling, right? Like it's not, yeah. it, like on an objective level, maybe I'm not having as much fun but I still have those feelings, that nostalgia attached to it. And just like being able to re-experience that is good enough. But again, like they made Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5. It was terrible. Like it was a glitchy mess. Like, you know, and even if it wasn't, even if it was like the best skateboarding game ever, I wasn't going to feel the same way about it as I did the first time I played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 or Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1. Like just not going to happen. So in short, people... Enough with the Dreamcast too, <laughs> but I, the Dreamcast came and yeah, went. Yeah, but I will say, and Paul did touch on this, and I think it is part of the legacy. Like the homebrew scene for the Dreamcast is alive and well. Like people are still oh, making yeah. fantastic games and ports, and you know, original stuff for the Dreamcast. So in that sense, it lives on, you know, through the people who care about it and are still creating new experiences for it. It really does. The fact that I'm the fact that I'm still buying games for it that are recently made. Yeah. Like um like Gunlord I picked up a couple of years mm-hmm. ago by the by Neo Dev team. Um and obviously Sturmwind, uh Fast Striker, like I don't man, this system just kinda won't die. <laughs> 
And it's always, it seems to be, and I could be completely wrong, but I always seem to hear the most of that stuff from systems like this. Like, it was around probably not long enough and it had like a solid lineup like i don't hear anybody being like check out my ps2 homebrew community you know it's always like here's some saturn stuff here's some you know dreamcast stuff here's some i don't know like some turbo stuff like stuff like that is usually what i hear more about yeah i hear like turbo nes yeah a lot of nes homebrew some master system stuff Mm -hmm. and dreamcast is mainly what i i think once you start getting into you know, PS2. And yeah, that it's it more difficult to program for. Yeah, and and Perhaps, I think for yeah. anyone who maybe missed a Dreamcast or yeah, what they maybe they weren't even born at the time. One of the best things about this console is that although they only sold nine million, it's easy to get one. It's easy to get the games. Like you were saying earlier, uh, Ozzy, like most mm. of the games are like ten dollars. So if you want yeah. Soul Calibur, if you want if you want Sonic Adventure. It's there for one dollar, right? So like the games are easy to pick up, and then you got the homebrew stuff. I think like the Dreamcast is going to live for, for a long time. Uh, I just bought myself a HDMI cable for it, so it's going to get hooked straight up to my 4K TV, and I'm just gonna it's it's going to live forever. Yeah, and this will sound. I think this will sound kind of like I don't want to say snobbish or like douchey, but even on the high end, like. Dreamcast stuff has not I think it will like I think it will get much more expensive but as of right now it's not at like Super Nintendo Nintendo levels of stuff like I was just looking I was just like on break looking at price charting stuff Giga Wing 2 seems to be like one of the most expensive games and I think like a complete copy is like 200 bucks which is very expensive but when you're talking like in the range of like what video games could be and you're talking about like five six hundred dollars saturn games like you know it's it's fairly easy for you to find these games if you want to find them and collect them yeah yeah um and then i think just to wrap up my my thing of it because we didn't talk about this before but i think another thing that people really like is the collectability of dreamcast like not just in software, but also in hardware. There's so many cool limited edition Dreamcasts. There's a bunch of cool controller and VMU combos um, that are really fun to like search out and look really awesome. Uh, yeah, I completely forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, no, there's like, I remember, obviously there's the sports, like the black sports Dreamcast, uh, but there's like the Code Veronica one, there's a Gundam one, there's a Seaman one, there's a Skeleton <laughs> one, like there's a bunch of really cool designs for that console. Yeah, and um, one more thing that I forgot to mention, I gotta, I gotta fit it in here, when talking about the legacy of creativity, mm-hmm. Sega Gaga. Oh, yes. You guys know this game? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what other system would that game come out for? <laughs> a game where you are taking Sega the company and there's a 3% market share and through various you know <laughs> tactical RPG or whatever elements you you're trying to overtake the evil you know Sony stand That's amazing. Of men. So cool. That's amazing. Ozzy, have you got any final thoughts? I think that the Dreamcast is a great send-off for Sega. Mm-hmm. If they if they had to go off you know with one system I'm glad that they went off with the Dreamcast. Agreed. Um, it would have been a terrible thing if the Saturn had been their last system. Yeah. Yep. And I think that we would have looked at Sega in a much different way then. And for all that we, you know, criticize Sega for, etc., mm-hmm. I mean, 
they gave us so many great experiences. And if in, in order for Sega to live on, they had to get out of the console space. Um, then it was a good it was a good gamble because we're still talking about Sega today. Yep. And it would have been terribly sad to not have Sega. So when you think about the Dreamcast, maybe the gamble was that if they had continued to support it, maybe it wouldn't have the Sega we know and love today. Yep. And I think it was a fair trade off. Um, and you know I love the Dreamcast, but you know history only moves forward. Yep. And what we have now is a very good system that. You know, did a lot. It was a giant in a very, very small time frame. And we have to appreciate it for that. And we have to appreciate that legacy. Yep. But at the end of the day, its death gave us the Sega that we still have today for better or for worse. And I think we just have to accept that and, you know, mourn its death because it was tragic. Yeah. But maybe it was the only way for Sega to survive. Yeah, well said. That's true. Yep. The lesson is, must look forward. Yep. And now they own Atlas, so I have to love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to finish on something that I, I've had in my mind since uh, we started talking about this episode. And I I like to think that this quote fits the Dreamcast to a T. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly. Goodbye, Dreamcast. Farewell. <laughs> Goodbye, Blue. <laughs> Cue Celine Dion's Titanic song. <laughs> Something. Uh, no, we don't want to get any copyright strikes, so no, don't do that. Uh, no, I, I... Trust me, I already did the math. Cue the I don't mess with any Quebecois of... woman. <laughs> but no, I think... At the end of the day, I think we all love Sega, even though we pick on them from time to time, so... I don't yeah. pick on Sega. I pick on Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, picking on Sega is like picking on an injured child. <laughs> Who's very creative. We love you, Sega. We love Arnie, you so you're, much. You're the only one that has the gall to like say that Sonic shouldn't be in the mini, mini collection. <laughs> you're, you're a monster. <laughs> well, thanks very much, guys. All right. Thank All you, right. man. Thank you for doing a great job hosting. Um, again, if you... Please feel free to visit us, you know, on the website. Um, and Jeff, if you want to take it away with some of the, know. you know, closing uh, spiel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can sound off on our uh, on our website, regionfreegamers.com. You can contact mm -hmm. any of us on Instagram and have a chat. Uh, and guys, where can we find you? Why yeah. don't I start off? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, Paul's underscore Game Room. Yep. Yeah, and you can also find me at Shadow of the Collector on Instagrams with periods in between those words. Yep, you can find me on the Region Free Gamers Instagram page. It's at Region Free Gamers Podcast. We also have a Twitter at Region Free Gamer with no S. Uh, and just on the website, you can email us at regionfreegamers at gmail.com. You know, however you want. You could, if you see me on the street, you can yell at me. Like, it's fairly <laughs> easy to get in contact with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the primary mode people use to <laughs> communicate with just you. throw eggs it's at arnie me. <laughs> i'm gonna give that guy shit what about you Jeff? Uh, and you can find me either in in holland uh cycling and drinking beer or you can find me on instagram <laughs> at gspot gaming all one word awesome right. so goodbye Sega. goodbye, goodbye dreamcast let's just all wave a goodbye let's give it a funeral goodbye, pyre goodbye dreamcast happy hey, 20 years happy 20 Ooh, years still can't years. drink alcohol it's fine <laughs> See you guys.
Ozzy, are you going to talk about semen or do I just bring it up? No, now? no, I'm never going to talk about semen unless you bring it up. 